Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this Future Gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. This month, we're looking at the outlook for the world economy in 2021 and how things might play out after the extraordinary events of 2020. We'll be asking our guests to give us their predictions based on their contributions to our Future Gazing annual, The World in 2021, which has just been published. In particular, we'll be asking, how does this crisis compare with previous ones? You have to go back to the 1930s to see something on this global scale. How has China's rapid recovery taken it back to the future? Interestingly, you know, if you'd fallen asleep in 2015 and you woke up in 2020 or 2021, a lot of the economic debates would look very familiar. And how will Joe Biden's election victory affect US-China trade? I don't think it's going to be very easy to drop the tariffs. I think we can assume that the tariffs are going to be here for the time being. The big question for 2021 is how quickly can economies bounce back from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic? Promising news on vaccines means governments could expect to have both medical and economic tools at their disposal. But exactly how things will play out is still unclear. We're in this sort of strange situation where there's a case for medium-term optimism. Henry Kerr is economics editor at The Economist. The vaccine means you can have a rapid rate rebound potentially. And the main error economic forecasters made in 2020 was to underestimate the extent to which economies can rebound when the virus levels are low. So that's a case for optimism. But at the same time, you have this very bad winter wave at the start of the year in the US and Europe. And the question is, how much scarring will be left? And it's a very, very difficult year in which to forecast the global economy, precisely because the shock that it has faced in the pandemic has been so novel. So in the world in 2021, you write that never in recent memory has so much uncertainty hung over global growth. What is it that makes this outlook so unpredictable? Is it simply this question of how quickly the vaccines kick in? I think it's the nature of the shock, the fact that the economic damage has been done by temporary closures to businesses, combined with this massive stimulus that has kept households and businesses afloat in many countries, and no one quite knowing when the veil is lifted and that stimulus is withdrawn, but the shutdowns are also lifted, exactly how things are going to play out. Even after the global financial crisis, which was an extraordinary and very deep economic shock, people had an idea of how to think about it. People knew that overhang from financial crisis could really constrain growth. After the pandemic, where we've experimented with these sort of policies to contain disease, which haven't been deployed before, I don't think people have a very good framework for thinking about it. There are some people who will say that the history of what economists would call real shocks, that means where something actually sort of almost physically goes wrong in the economy, which is the government coming in and telling you you can't open, for example, is that you can rebound quickly. And it's only when you have problems in monetary policy or the banking system that you get a really long hangover. At the same time, The long-term joblessness numbers in many countries are quite concerning. And so if it took as long as it did last time around to work off that level of 
of joblessness, then you would be in for a slow recovery. So I think it's the nature and magnitude of the shock just means we're really outside of forecasters' comfort zones. But to what extent can our experience of the previous crisis act as a guide to this crisis? How comparable are they really? Compared to the previous one, the 2008-2009, I would point out two factors right off the bat. Carmen Reinhardt is Vice President and Chief Economist at the World Bank. 2008-2009 was called the global financial crisis. That crisis, despite its name as a global financial crisis, was really about 11 wealthy economies, 11 advanced economies, mostly in Europe, US. This crisis is truly global. It's hitting low income, middle income, high income, no region spared. You have to go back to the 1930s to see something on this global scale. Then of course, another obvious difference is that the origins of this crisis is not your typical asset price bubble. It didn't start out with a country defaulting on its debt. So because of that, the impacts on economic activity have been very different from any prior crisis because of the shutdowns. So given that it's so different from previous crises, can our experience of previous crises give us any sort of guide to how this one will play out? I think it will because this crisis did not start out as a financial crisis, but because of the economic downturn being so severe and quite protracted, it is morphing into a financial crisis. You know, the balance sheets of households that can't repay debt the balance sheets of enterprises, especially in the tourism and and hospitality area that, that will not reopen, that kind of balance sheet stress has so far been, you could call it in a state of suspension. Because in this crisis, what we've seen is country after country adopt measures to try to provide forbearance for households and firms. That is, you know, suspension of debt payments. But once those suspensions come to an end, I think we will see a lot of the financial fragilities emerge more clearly. And that means recovery will take time. The recovery is not the bounce back. Uh, It's not a V-shape. Yet there is one big economy, China, that appears to have bucked the trend. For these retirees in Shanghai, life is getting back to normal. They say they are still very careful, especially in crowded places, as there are still new cases. Before they go out, they always check that they have the essentials, phone, keys and face mask. As they watch passers-by, they say the economy has basically recovered and that most people are back to work. They go on to say that China has developed rapidly since the 1980s and they trust the central government's ability to plan for the future. And for workers too, things are getting back to normal. This estate agent says that aside from having to wear masks in public, life is back to how it was before the pandemic. He says the property market has in fact outperformed last year's, with more people buying homes. People are optimistic about China's recovery, he says, as it's such a large economy with all sorts of industries and is largely self-reliant, rather than being dependent on the outside world. 
China's economic achievement looks to have been quite remarkable. I mean, a lot of economists talk about a V-shaped recovery, and uh, the talk can be quite loose. Simon Cox is Emerging Markets Editor at The Economist. Sometimes people simply mean that growth rates get back to the kind of pace we're used to. China's actually done rather better than that. Uh, the level of GDP could be back to what we expected it to be when we were looking forward in 2019 to what China's economy might look like in 2021. The analogy I like to use is two runners in a race. Imagine they're both running at the same pace, neck and neck, and one of them falls over. Um, after dusting themselves off, they might then resume running at the same pace as before. That runner might say they've had a V-shaped recovery, but of course, they'd never catch up to their competitor. China, though, because it will grow so quickly next year, we forecast, could get back to run abreast with the, the self that would have existed even if the pandemic had never happened. So that's really an unusual and uh, quite impressive economic achievement. I mean, I should probably add a couple of caveats. All of this is obviously based on forecasts and quite optimistic forecasts, but it would be roughly where we expected it to be when we were making projections in 2019. So why has China been able to bounce back so quickly then? Well, one thing we all know about China is that the state exercises rather more control than in other economies. And that's particularly true on the demand side of the economy, its ability to mobilise spending when it has to. Now, that's partly because you know, China's an emerging economy. There's always uh, lots of suppressed demand, lots of things to spend money on. Interest rates, for example, in China are a little higher than they were in the advanced economies going into the pandemic. That gives the central bank a little bit more room to loosen. But more importantly, there are state-owned banks that are willing to lend if the government requires them to, and state-owned borrowers, enterprises, that are willing to spend if the government requires them to. And we've seen local governments invest in infrastructure to support the economy, and we've seen credit grow really quite quickly. The other thing that, of course, distinguishes China is the timing of the pandemic. So it's been a sort of staggered process where China had its pandemic early, managed to get it under control very quickly, and that meant that when the rest of the global economy had to shut down, China's factories were more or less up and running. And that meant that China and China alone really could meet the global demand for things like protective equipment. And its factories, therefore, were running really quite quickly and exports have been very strong. Now, one question about this is to what extent are these sorts of forecasts and these predictions based on numbers from the Chinese government, which some people would say we can't necessarily trust? That's an excellent question. But of course, what we're looking at here is whether China will catch up to where we thought it would be. And the people who doubt China's growth figures doubted them in 2019 too. So those people, the sceptics about the data, had more modest, more sceptical projections for where China would be in 2021. And those people actually are amongst those who think China will get back to that 2021 projection because although they doubt the economy figures now, they doubted them before as well, and the adjustments they make are pretty much the same. So actually, this doesn't depend on how much credence you give to the official figures. And in fact, you know, some of the alternative indicators have been very strong too. Now, the overall level of economic activity may get back to where it was, but will the economy sort of structurally, will it have been changed by the pandemic? What's the difference? Yes, yeah, so th I think there you will see a difference. There, China in 2021 will look different from how we might have thought uh, China would look when we were projecting forward from 2019. In particular, back then, China was in the middle of two really quite long-running economic campaigns, an attempt to deleverage and an attempt to rebalance. The attempt to deleverage was really an effort to restrain credit, to make sure that debts didn't accumulate too quickly. 
Now, all of that has had to reverse a little bit as a result of um, the, the measures that the government took to support growth this year. So credit growth was very quick earlier in the year. And they've already begun to, to restrain that, though. And the other big long-running campaign is rebalancing. Uh, what people mean by that is a sort of shift away from investment, from exports, towards consumption. And that has had to go into reverse this year, and it'll take time to get back on track. So I think we will see uh, the investment rate being a higher share of GDP than we expected it to be, and consumption being smaller. Interestingly, you know, if you'd fallen asleep in 2015 and you woke up in 2020 or 2021, a lot of the economic debates would look very familiar. In fact, you know, I was covering China's economy back in 2014, 2015, and I since switched to looking at emerging markets more generally. And when I was asked to write this piece for the world in 2021, I wondered if I would be up to speed. But looking at the debates, they looked awfully familiar to the same debates that I was deeply enmeshed in back in uh, the middle of the decade. Uh, so I felt confident writing the piece. China's rapid rebound is due in large part to the way it suppressed the virus very quickly. Vaccines should help other countries get the virus under control in 2021. But the pandemic isn't the only factor affecting the global economic outlook for next year. There's also the question of how the result of America's election will affect its trade policies, in particular with China. Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States. Wall Street has surged to an historic day after Donald Trump formally paved the way clear for Joe Biden's transition into the White House. I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify. I think that people will expect policy from the Biden White House on China to be somewhat more predictable and less erratic. Henry Kerr again. And so I would have thought that it removes a cloud hanging over the global economy. But you can't overstate that. There's been a big shift in Washington towards a hawkishness on China that is bipartisan. The tariffs that President Trump implemented will remain in place for the time being. And what's much more likely is that the Biden administration tries to put together a sort of international alliance to take on China rather than pursuing trade disputes with its allies as well. I don't think it's going to be very easy to drop the tariffs. I think we can assume that the tariffs are going to be here for the time being. Sumeya Keynes is The Economist's trade and globalisation editor. I think there is a sense that the Trump administration has left the Biden administration with leverage, and I think that they will try to use that. There's also nothing that the Biden administration has said to suggest that they are going to take a much softer approach with China. If anything, there's been an effort to continue the, the tough rhetoric and, and accuse Trump of not delivering enough from the US-China trade wars. The Biden administration you know, has made it clear that it's, that it's unhappy with various things that the Chinese are doing. I think human rights abuses are going to become more important. Uh, there are clearly a lot of security types who would favour something like decoupling as a kind of American defence measure. But there are also areas in which actually a Biden administration might see the benefit in cooperating. So, for example, climate change. The big question for me is the extent to which 
you know, the trade lane, the tariffs are going to be separated out from other policy areas, or if Biden is going to run a broader, more joined up foreign policy strategy in which all of these different considerations are taken together and, and, and lumped in the same negotiation. And do you think it's likely that um, Joe Biden will want to mend fences with with allies to put more pressure on China? I think the Biden administration has already said that it would like to coordinate with allies, work more closely with allies. It's going to find out that that means acceding to some demands. Um, And in particular, the European Union is very keen that the Americans drop tariffs on steel imports. One thing that the Trump administration has done is it's stymied the World Trade Organization's system of settling disputes. Resolving that is very important to the Europeans. So there are questions of what allies want. What will it take to, to smooth over relations there? So working with allies sounds, sounds very good, um, but it may not be entirely straightforward to, to implement that. So it sounds as though the post-Trump, post-COVID world that we hope we're going to be getting to next year is still a very complicated place. What does all this mean then for growth overall? Absent another disaster, another crisis, another president tweeting random threats to trading partners, I suspect that trade will grow more quickly than it has done over the last year or two, say. Some of that will just be a dead cat bouncing, but some of that will be genuinely a healthier outlook question is whether this is a a sort of turning point, whether in some products, chief executives will say, you know what, this is just all a bit too stressful, we're going to look inward. And how much the uncertainty, how much the shock of having experienced export restrictions does change investment decisions. Another much debated question for 2021 is whether the world economy faces a bigger risk from inflation or deflation. So which is Carmen Reinhardt of the World Bank more worried about? Both. And that's not an inconsistency. If you tell me inflation or deflation, for whom? Let's start where I worry about the most about big inflationary spikes. Developing countries and emerging markets, which are facing much more difficult situation in borrowing internationally, either because they can't borrow because they're already at crisis or near crisis, or because borrowing in international markets is very expensive. They have to pay very high interest rates. Uh, So they borrow more domestically. It means more monetary issuance domestically. We are likely to see, I think, in many of the developing and emerging markets, more of an inflation bias. I think for advanced economies, it's a different issue. I think there are, you know, the big crack in aggregate demand is, of course, a major check on inflationary pressures. However, I would also note that we globally, not just the emerging, but the advanced as well, are seeing through the COVID crisis, not just an aggregate demand shock, but also importantly, many aggregate supply shocks. But beware, because supply shocks also can be a trigger factor for inflationary pressures. But I don't, in the advanced economies, I don't see that as a dominant feature over the very near term. One option, as countries try to revive growth, is to experiment with negative interest rates. So is that something to watch out for in 2021? Here's Henry Kerr again. So this is a really interesting 
question. Monetary policy looks somewhat exhausted on its present toolkit, and I would have thought that that does mean that more countries take steps towards experimenting with negative rates. That said, there's been a sort of battle between the people who think negative rates are the answer and the people who think it's all down to fiscal policy now. And I would say that the fiscal folks are are winning in the first instance. So I do expect more central banks to try negative rates or more deeply negative rates. But I do not think it's going to be seen as central to economic policymaking in the way that fiscal stimulus will be. It seems a safe bet that vaccines will arrive next year then, but there are many other factors that will determine the path of economic recovery. So what do our guests think the economic landscape will look like by the end of 2021? First, Carmen Reinhardt at the World Bank. I think there will be disappointments in terms of the speed of the recovery. A lot of the problems that we have seen sown here in 2020 because of the pandemic and, and the economic disruptions it's caused are going to be lingering with us into 2021. I'm sorry I'm so bleak, but there it is. Simon Cox. Well, hopefully an awful lot better than it looks right now. We will see some reshuffling in, in the pecking order, I think. I mean, India could easily shrink by almost 10% in 2020. Places like Mexico have also been extremely hard hit. Anywhere that depends on tourism, Thailand, for example, uh, has also been clobbered. So uh, there's been a sort of reshuffling within the ranks of emerging economies as well, which I think will be quite interesting to look at uh, in 2021. What about in the United States? Here's Sumeya Keynes. I think at the end of next year, fingers crossed, COVID-19 and the Trump presidency will seem like fairly unpleasant memories. But that is not to say that trade will be flowing freely and companies will be happily arranging lots of cross-border linkages. And finally, is Henry Kerr more optimistic? I think that in 2020, people were a bit too pessimistic about the rebound from the spring. And I think that's probably the case as well in 2021. But it's going to be a world economy in which China is much further ahead relative to where it was before the pandemic than anybody else. And it's going to be a world economy that continues to be in this sort of strange world where inflation and interest rates are not behaving as we expected. So a mixture of the old and the new, I would say. Thank you to Henry Kerr, Sumeya Keynes, Simon Cox and Carmen Reinhardt. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. You can read more on the economic outlook for next year and many other predictions in our annual The World in 2021. The print version is on newsstands from early December and it's online for subscribers already at economist.com slash worldin. If you're not a subscriber, visit economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. And all of those links are in the show notes. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist. <laughs>